You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke. We'll read together beginning at verse 45 of Luke 19, reading to verse 8 of Luke 20. Our text will be verses 1 to 8 of Luke 20. Coming here to the end of our Lord's earthly ministry as well as His life, before His suffering and death, later resurrection, we see very clearly that Christ, however, was not concerned about His earthly welfare. He was concerned about the kingdom of God and establishing that kingdom amongst God's people, preparing them to take that kingdom, we might say, into the world. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when I preached this sermon for the first time, I reminded our congregation that our council, uh, being leaders of a small group of persons, are often tasked with making decisions about the church building and property. I suppose a congregation of your size has a committee that takes care of this. Nevertheless, uh, in our congregation in Leduc, uh, our council in particular is given authority to spend money for its upkeep and maintenance, perhaps reluctantly, but that is what we have to do. Imagine for a moment, and you can imagine this for yourself also here in Langley, and that it was all your council was ever called to do. Uh, they would become glorified caretakers of the building and the grounds, but having no influence, rule, or responsibility amongst the people. So no more elders visits, or if they visit you, maybe they'll just talk about a building project or some painting in some room that needs to be done. No more authoritative preaching from the pulpit, just calls for you to assist the, perhaps the building committee in their work. No more collections for kingdom causes. All your money will go right to the building and the grounds, as we said. The council or consistory could no longer be called such, but they would be then that committee. They would no longer be a consistory of elders, but a board of directors. The church would become a business, 
And what would be most important would be simply how you look in terms of your outward appearance to yourselves as well as perhaps to the neighbors or homes around you. We know that is not so. Of course not. May the bride of Christ never be treated or spoken of in such a reductionistic fashion. But sometimes the way we as Christians speak about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or even sometimes the way we live as witnesses of His kingdom throughout the week, conveys the idea that He is merely a caretaker or custodian of the church. But not the Lord of all under whose authority and headship we exist. This is what I want to stress to you from God's Word this morning. Jesus' authority over God's people. Let's see, first of all, that it was challenged, particularly by His enemies. As we read at the end of Luke 19, the leaders of the people were none too happy about Jesus' teaching in the temple. They wanted to kill Him, in fact. Were they so incensed by what he had done, cleansing the temple as well as now instructing the people. But the reason they were not able to move or act upon their desire or inner motivations was because the people wanted to listen to him. Our Lord had a following, and it appears a faithful following. People hung on his every word. Well, it appears in our text that now they've decided in response to what's going on in the temple to send a delegation made up excuse me, of men who represented the movers and shakers of this temple ministry in Jerusalem. The chief priests, scribes, and elders, or call it the consistory or council, if you like. But the religious leadership in Jerusalem has not changed their mind about him. They haven't been convinced that he is up to good, at least as far as their interests or goals are concerned regarding the flock of God. Nor were they even looking for a a theological discussion or debate with him or seeking to find out more about who Jesus was. They came near with the intent to not merely ask him, but demand that he tell them what he is doing. Now, let's be clear about something here. It's not wrong necessarily to ask about one's authority or where one's authority comes from. Certainly the church of God, His temple, His people is to be treated in a holy fashion because we serve a holy God. What Jesus had done recently in the cleansing of the temple of the money changers was very shocking and might need to be accounted for in terms of what it did because of its relationship to the sacrificial life or ceremonies of the church. Certainly in the history of Christ's church, and even today, we know there are so-called reformers with the small r, who are really just nothing more than glorified troublemakers, who aren't seeking really to refine or purify the church or the body of Christ in order to to grant her or give her this desire to serve the Lord, but rather are serving themselves. So the first question they ask of Jesus is a good question. Do you have this authority of yourself? 
Did you anoint? Did you ordain or consecrate yourself? This would indeed be a serious error of judgment by any man. No one in the Old Testament or New Testament gives themselves an office. One was appointed by God to be prophet, priest, and king. Boys and girls, you might remember in the Old Testament that Samuel, Samuel anointed Saul and David. He did this because God called him to anoint them as kings over God's people. And therefore, Saul and David knew that God wanted them to be kings when God used his servant to appoint them to that office. Even for many of us who work in an office or some other kind of uh, business environment, uh, may get in trouble with a client and you may have to call your superior over to you. The superior will have to answer for your actions or may be able to facilitate some kind of agreement between you and your clients. The point is, is that we understand, we understand in the church as well as in the world, this authority structure, and that's what they're calling Jesus out to. So the problem is not that they wanted to find out who this Jesus was or what he was doing, but by doing so, they are actually asserting their own authority over him, as is clear from their words in verse 2. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who gave you this authority? Call this throwing our weight around. Angrily denouncing anyone who challenges them. Precisely because these men thought of themselves as the lawful authority. They were in charge, and now Jesus is infringing upon their territory. But remember, as we know well through the reading of the Gospels, that these men are really predators who attack and scatter the flock, as Ezekiel said in his day, devouring and destroying the sheep. Lawful authorities are not. They are jealous of our Lord's influence amongst the people, and they want to step in and stop it before it gets out of control. But what we have to understand then about these men is that ultimately their problem is with God. Their problem is with God. In fact, even as they confront our Lord, they're really confronting God Himself and calling Him to account even as men do in our day and age. They are passing judgment upon God Himself who has sent His Son into this world and has granted Him this authority. Do you recall? Everywhere the Scriptures testify of this truth. Our Lord was sealed by the Holy Spirit in His baptism who was preparing Him for His teaching and preaching ministry. Everywhere Jesus taught, he testified of the glory of the kingdom of heaven and the authority and the appointment that his Father in heaven had bestowed upon him. Jesus is no disturber of the peace, nor is he like these men, moved by concerns even for his own person. Remember what John said in his gospel In the first cleansing of the temple, it was Jesus' words, but John records them as zeal for God's house has consumed me. 
He loved God. He wanted to serve God. And not only that, because he loved God, he loved God's people. He was not Lord over them because he wished to to wield the sword or to, to push them and compel them to do whatever he wished them to do. They were the sheep of God's pasture. He cared for them deeply. He was moved by their suffering. They were in his heart and in his mind constantly. That's why he taught them. Our text says that he preached the gospel to them. He gave them good news. News that that encourages sinners not, of course, to continue in their sin, but to come to him to be reconciled unto God. To acknowledge the, the cross that lay before him, the sacrificial death and suffering of which the Old Testament prophesied. That is how he demonstrated. That's how he proved his authority over God's people. That's how elders today, pastors, need to do the same. Need to be an example in their words and their deeds. But more importantly, that's precisely why Christ has authority today as well. Brothers and sisters, do we not hear Christ's voice? Do we not hear the words of our shepherd in the word of God, especially as it is preached? And are we not encouraged to follow him? Do we not believe that his words are truth and we trust him? He is authority over you and over I. And his words ring in our ears and hearts. This is his ministry. This is demonstration of his love and care for his sheep. Demonstration of his authority. So I want you to note that the question before us this morning then is not, will you submit to authority or will you not? As if to say, well, you know, there's some examples of people who have ruled poorly in the church or even sometimes in an evil way, such as these men before us, the opposites of our Lord. Therefore, I don't have to listen to them. I don't have to respect them. No, the question is, to which authority will you submit? Will you submit to yourself in your own ways and desires? Or will you submit to another? And if it is another, who will it be? You see the importance of answering this question correctly as our Lord himself contends in response to those who challenged his authority. That's our second point, contention or contending for Jesus' authority. Now, we see in verses 3 and following that our Lord does not answer the questions of his opponents directly. In a sense, the reason he is doing that, that is by answering with a question, is an assertion of his authority. That these rulers are blind to the Lord of glory is absolutely astounding. But notice that our Lord does not point them first to himself, though he could have done so but wants them to to think about someone else with whom they were already familiar with. Another figure whom they had interacted with, namely John the Baptist. I would argue that the reason that he does this, that despite all the praise we give him today, even in our worship of which he is worthy, is that for our Lord, the central issue of his ministry was the kingdom of God. And who proclaimed that kingdom of God for his boys and girls? Who prepared God's people for it? It was John the Baptist. 
Everything that John the Baptist did was an affirmation of the kingdom and everything that the king, Jesus, had come to do. That's why Jesus does not even so much focus upon the man himself, but upon what he did. What about John's baptism? Now, let's not read this as 21st century North American Christians, especially with so many debates amongst uh, professing believers about the mode and subjects of baptism. But let's try at least to read this as a first century Jew. We recall that baptism existed already in the Old Testament in various cleansings and purifications. And these cleansings and purifications were under the uh, supervision, we might say, or the authority of the priests. The man who had authority in the temple of God and ministry amongst God's people. This much is assumed in John 1 when the Jews who had sent priests and Levites, authorities, from Jerusalem to ask John who he was. And when they rightly conclude that he's not the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet, authority figures, they ask, well, why then do you baptize? In other words, John, what, what authority do you have from the law to do so when only God grants that to the priests or to these men whom the Bible told us were going to come and to baptize us? Well, John answers, I baptize with water, yes. So in a certain sense, I have a kind of authority. But there's one coming after me whom you do not know, but has surpassed me because he was before me. In short, I may baptize with water because if you really understand what my ministry is all about, you will understand under whose or the person under whose supervision I labor, the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He is greater than I. John was just a cog in the work of the kingdom. His work pointed to Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus says in light of this, for the Levites would have returned and told the authorities about John and their conversation with him in light of this. Well, what have you concluded about the matter of John's baptism? In other words, am I the one of whom John spoke? Were you listening to what he said? He, after all, was giving out, we might say, a baptism of repentance, which points to the forgiveness of sins. And your need to be reconciled with God. So our Lord is giving them an answer about authority if they can connect the dots. And he asks a crucial, a crucial question in terms of understanding authority in verse 4. Is it from men or from heaven? Or verse 7, where was it from? From is, means source. Where does it come from? This is the authority question, in fact, brothers and sisters, that you and I have to ask about the church. The temple, as per the previous story, had been turned into something that God never intended. It had become impure and corrupt because God's people did not follow the rules that he laid before them in Holy Scripture about how they ought to conduct themselves in the house of God. 
And so it is today for you and I as well as we consider what the church is and what she does, especially in corporate worship. Who decides what goes on and what is authorized? In terms of what we claim to be the adoration and glorification of God. Well, I'd like to encourage you, exhort you, to neither think from the perspective of the liberal, the liberal-minded person who says that because the world is changing, then we have to reflect what the world is doing in order to be relevant or contemporary. So that the worship, the ministry of the church is always changing as per the culture and time in which we live. Nor, nor ought we to think from the perspective of the conservative who merely wishes to keep the church the way it is for the sake of the traditions we prefer or personally like. Absolutely not. Both options are close to us as those who submit to Christ. And Christ lays it then before us plainly. Is it from God or is it from men? Either it is divine, it is from heaven, or it is earthly and fleshly. If it is from men, then you can dismiss it. Now, of course, we don't toss those things that we've done in the garbage. We don't reform the church in a haphazard way. Love admonishes, love corrects and teaches We encourage one another to be the body of Christ that we're called to be. But if what we are doing, we are convinced from Scripture, is not required, it is not allowed, then we must leave it behind us as something that causes a stumbling block between us and our God. Remember that John the Baptist was sent from the Lord. And the people knew this. If not because of his actions, certainly because Scripture predicted it. Isaiah and Malachi had prophesied of his coming. Therefore, his authority to do what he did amongst the people of God, especially as they responded in gratitude and submission to it, was a recognition that his baptism was from heaven. That's precisely why these men with whom our Lord contends are put into a quandary or dilemma. They have to reason amongst themselves now as to what their answer is going to be. If we say that this baptism of John was from heaven, then he will reply to us, you should have believed him. I mean, think about it. On the day of judgment, when you stand before the Lord, Are you going to say to him that you did not know the gospel? That you did not know the way, the authorized way to the Father through his Son? That you didn't know how to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God? Are you going to say that, brothers and sisters? I hope not. We should have believed what the Word of God told us. What about... If this baptism, in this case, was from John and not from God, well, these leaders were in a pickle. The crowd will be angry, they say, and kill them, verse 6. 
Now, whether that actually would have happened or not, it does illustrate to us that sometimes the congregation, sometimes the congregation knows better than its own leaders. They, they acknowledged John as a prophet from God. But see, the, these men are only concerned about themselves. Even as they are seeking to kill Jesus, they're worried about their own lives. And now figuratively, we would say that they are stuck between a rock and a hard place. But it is much more significant than that. For as our Lord goes on to speak of in verse 18 of the same chapter, chapter 20, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on he, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Christ himself. Or as he asked his own disciples, who do you say that I am? Will these men believe or will they not? Well, we see in our third and final point that they do, in a sense, consent. Consent to Jesus' authority over God's people. Of course, at first we read in verse 7 that they say, we don't know where it was from. They feign ignorance. Of course they feign or pretend that they do not know because all men do. All fallen men do when they hear the truth. They suppress that truth. Whether they, though they are crushed under the weight of their own tradition, or whether they, they openly rebel against the Lord, no excuse is sufficient. But that's exactly what they were trying to do. They're trying to make excuses. In reality, they would not answer our Lord directly because the answers held out some very uncomfortable consequences for themselves. That's precisely what they didn't want to face due to the hardness of their hearts. Because when they are pressed to provide an answer to Jesus' question, they hem and they haw, thinking about the personal cost of their answer as opposed to doing what? Weighing whether it is true or not. Which one is most important? The personal consequences for me and how I answer the question or whether it is true. For sinful man, the cost, the cost always takes precedence over the truth. Not surprisingly, since we know that these men representing the temple ministry of Jerusalem and generally the leadership amongst God's people at this time never wanted to know the truth. They had an agenda or personal end in mind. They were trying to establish their power over Christ. They were probably trying to embarrass him in front of the flock to, to put him into a corner so that he wouldn't know how to answer their question and therefore show themselves to be the authority over him. But you see, the essence of all true authority is never raw power, personal appointment or recognition of oneself for one's own sake, whether it be found in civil government, church government, parental government, all covered under the fifth commandment. These are all derived from the consent and allowance of God. That is the truth. All other authority besides God then is temporary, provisional and limited. And they should have seen that. But they don't care about that. And really what we see here is an illustration of how also many in our day and age don't want to have to answer the hard questions that pertain to their understanding 
or reception of the claims of Scripture and the Christian faith. In other words, we don't go out and witness to people, how does the gospel make you feel? How do you feel about the Ten Commandments or the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Not necessarily a horrible question to ask. It's not really the most important question to ask. In fact, they may very well feel quite bad about what we reveal to them or what they hear in the the preaching ministry of the church. And as a response, then they will reject the gospel because they don't like the message. It confronts them. It puts them into a corner. It tells them that they are not the authority, that God is the authority. They must respond to him. They must answer to him. Of course, they don't like it. And if we merely said, well, how does it make people feel? We would have to silence the word of God. We would never preach it the way we should have it done because people don't like it, but that's not what matters. And when they hear the truth, they will stall or change the subject. And maybe that makes us frustrated. Maybe that makes us frustrated, but it ought to sadden us too because it demonstrates One who will not, who will not bow the knee to Christ. You see, it has nothing to do with you or me. We may feel rejected. We may feel bad. We may feel slighted. We may feel attacked. Sometimes even our own character, our words uh, will come under assault. But that's not what matters. They have to answer to the Lord. They have to answer to the Lord. And what were the alternatives then? Let's go back to this for a minute. In terms of them consenting to Christ's authority, what were the alternatives? Well, the first alternative was this. To acknowledge that John's baptism was from heaven, which would have resulted in them looking very foolish and disobedient for not having rightly received John's ministry as from God himself. But think about it. If it was true, if the baptism of John was from God, wouldn't it be worth looking foolish even for a moment? Wouldn't it be worth it to reject one's own disobedience to the anointed one, John the Baptist representing Christ and embracing Christ's rule over them as good, as a divine blessing? But they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. What about the second alternative? To face death at the hands of the crowd. Now think about that. If they really believed in their heart of hearts that John the Baptist's baptism was from men, then wouldn't death have been worth it? They would be opposing someone who had wrested or usurped authority from God. What happens, after all, to those who take something they are not authorized to take and to do something they are not authorized to do? Read Genesis 3. Adam and Eve. Death. So God would have taken care of John the Baptist in due time. He was a false prophet if they were true or if what they believed of him was true. He was duping the people. He was leading them astray. So much the better to die as martyrs for their cause. It would have been worth it. Absolutely worth it if it was true. I want you to note then 
that even though they took neither course or pathway, these deliberations on their part are ironic because these are two of the things that Christ calls His disciples to do or and to be. To face rejection by the world because we look foolish. Paul said to the Corinthians, the gospel is foolishness. It does sound ridiculous. But we also remember that it saves if we believe in the Christ whom that gospel proclaims. And brothers and sisters, many, many in the early church, as you well know, even today in various places in the world, many are dying for the sake of Jesus Christ, even as he himself would die for his message and his ministry. In other words, there are weighty consequences, not just for those who reject Christ's authority over them, but for those who accept and believe in it as well. There is a personal cost. And sometimes to the extreme of death itself. But those costs are good if we are truly following Him. How much better is it to be on the side of the Lord? How much better is it to be under His authority than that of the prince of the power of the air and all the wicked rulers in this world? There's no other authority in heaven and on earth that you should want to be under. If you want to be under the authority of yourselves, the Scripture tells you that you will die in your sins. If you want to be under the authority of the world, the religious leaders in the place of Christ, you will die for your sins. If you are under the authority of Christ, He has died for your sins. So note our Lord's final words here. His answer to those who hemmed and hawed in verse 8, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. The door to divine knowledge, which can only be entered into by submission to divine authority, is shut. If you want to know God's truth, brothers and sisters, if we want to know God's truth, you have to, to submit to Christ's authority. You cannot first get the knowledge that you want and then decide afterward if you will submit. Remember what our Lord taught. You have to come as a little child. If you say no, no, no to the gospel proclamation, the authoritative gospel proclamation in this church and in the Scriptures, if you say no, 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 you are saying no to Jesus Himself. Because our Lord demonstrates here, He answers to no one but the Father. Indeed, who who amongst us will make Christ answer for anything that He has done? That only happened once in His impending trial, suffering, crucifixion, and death, never again. Indeed, at last, His enemies will be brought before Him to answer for what they have done. They will receive the penalty for sin and rebellion, which is eternal separation and suffering. And why? Why at the last is that the case? 
Well, as Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you refuse to submit now to Christ and his kingdom, it will be to your eternal shame. So do you confess him now? And do you see the good of it? For brothers and sisters, we know from Scripture that no one is ever truly free unless they are under the headship and lordship of Christ. You can live in a culture and society that grants you rights, freedoms, and independence of all kinds, even to the extent that would be unimaginable to previous generations or to other nations now assembled on earth. You can join a church that tells you you can live any way you please and believe anything you please. But these are not the kinds of things that set men free, but bind them all the more to their sinful fallen nature to which the Bible tells us we are slaves. So let us rejoice this morning in Christ's authority over his people, that's us, and tell others the good news that Jesus reigns over our lives for he has truly bought us with his precious blood to be his own possession. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.